0: deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law and I'm a sojourner on the earth hide not your commandments from me my soul's consumed with longing for your rules at all times you rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies even though princes sit plotting against me your servant will meditate on your statutes your testimony Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. So um, if you were here last week, Jim uh, went through Psalm 119. I'm actually going to recap some things that he had talked about uh, in a second. But one of the things that he had said that I actually want to jump all the way into as we, just, we looked at Psalm 119 and recognized it would be a um, monumental task to try to address on on one Sunday. Jim really went at some of that the kind of analytical side very early on in his sermon, and I thought he did really well there. Um, and I want to recap that again in a second, but I want to share something that, um, that he had shared and I, I thought was crazy to me, um, and, and that's actually where I want to start. Um, he, he had shared a quote from uh, George Guthrie, and this is what he had said. Less then 10% of all churches teach their folks how to study the Bible. Less than 50% of all incoming freshmen, when he says incoming freshmen, he doesn't mean um, of all universities. He, he's at a uh, uni- union university there. It's a Christian university. So less than 50% of Christians who come to this university uh, uh, can get 50 out of 100 questions correct on the basic Bible exam. Now, he read those things, and maybe you're like, "Wow, well, okay, that's crazy, and maybe we can share some uh, studies from Barna or stats or whatever it is. But I remember hearing that, and honestly thinking, and I know this may come out, you know, from the jump and sound rude, but here's the reality, guys. I, I think for the most part, you are lumped into those stats. Like, I, I, I don't think um, if we were to give you the, you the test, um, I don't know how well you would do. I don't know if you would get 50. And I know that may sound condemning. I'm not trying to be. But the reality is, hear me when I say this, I just don't know if we care. Like, I don't know if we care enough about our Bibles to read it. And so what I want to do is I want to drive at that. I want to get at our text and I want to go through Psalm 119. But before we do anything, let's be clear in something that we know to be true. But we do the things we care about. We make time for the things we want to do. So every single Wednesday night at 9 p.m., I'll put my kids to bed. I will drive to 19th Avenue and Camelback, meet about 20 other guys, and we will play basketball. Okay, now basketball, I, I play it, though it's hard. I've got to get down and play defense. I run to the point I feel like I'm throwing up. I do it because I like basketball. I, I, I drive 10, 15 miles to a gym, which, by the way, has no air conditioning because we're poor. We can't afford to, to pay for the air conditioning bill, okay? Literally, to the, I, I'm not over-exaggerating. It's probably 130 degrees in there some Wednesday nights. Like when the game's over, people go outside. We we live in Phoenix, okay? People go outside and go, oh yes, okay. That's how hot it is. Why would I do that? Why would I leave the comfort of my home at nine at night, when when I can lay my head on my pillow, relax, when I could chill, when I can hang out with my wife? Why would I do that? Because I like basketball. I like winning. I like competing. And I like I win a lot. Um, I like basketball. I will make time, even though it's hard to play basketball physically, even though it's 130 30 degrees up in that jump up, I feel the way to go. My desire to play basketball is greater than what my body is telling me right now. Do you understand? And so what I want to get at is ultimately what I would argue Jesus gets at while he's here on the earth. And what we will get at as we head into the fall going through the Sermon on the Mount, that God is not so interested in your actions, but if he can grab your heart in such a way, he will show you that he has greater desires, that your desire for him can be greater than your desire to do anything else. Meaning, let me me explain what, what I'm trying to say here, that in the moments where I feel like I don't want to get down and play defense, where I don't want to sprint and try to stop him from making that layup, When I want to put forth extra effort to get into the place that I need to, my desire to win, I tell my body, I don't care how you feel. Do you understand? So though I have a desire to stop playing defense, my desire to win is greater than my desire. And so here's what I want to do. I want to unearth that greater desire. My prayer all this week is I have like done my best to understand the goal of this sermon, and it's very intentional. I'm going to say the words that I, that I have here. My desire is that God would use me, okay, that the Holy Spirit would use me in this moment. Because it's only something that the Holy Spirit can do. And my prayer is that he would use me to awaken that desire. That you would see the Bible as the most beautiful, the best, the most poetic, life-giving, possible thing that you desperately need as a Christian. You so desperately need it. Now, we're going to get to Psalm 119, but for me to do this, um, I want to start with, if you consider yourself a Christian, I want to start with where this whole thing begins. Because after Jesus dies, um, there's some letters that are going around. They're letters that you have in your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Well, these letters are going around, and, and there's really kind of one caveat to all of this. The church at the time knows that Jesus, um, as he's, he's leaving the earth, he has given the apostles the ability to write the words of God. So he has his disciples, and so what we find very early on in the church is that people are going, well, what are the apostles saying? What are the apostles saying? Now, there's a problem with this because some people are going around pretending to be apostles, but the church recognizes certain letters, and so they have this kind of ebb and flow, and they recognize what letters are belonging to what we know as the Bible. But there's no Bible because here's what happens. There's this huge wave of persecution very early on in 300 AD, okay? So bad it's called the baptism of the blood. People are being sawn in half, crucified upside down, beheaded, fed to lions. The church is just losing people left and right. And what goes along with that is, Rome, as much as they hate Christians, they also hate the material in which they're reading. And so they begin to burn those letters. And as they're burning those letters, when, when the dust settles literally from people being burned alive, a man named Athanasius takes the lead in grabbing what remnants of of the copies that they had of those original manuscripts, 13,000 to be exact. So Athanasius takes the church and says, I know we've been crucified, I know we've been sawn into two, I know our letters have been burned, but we can take these 13,000 copies and see very systematically over the next 10 years what is supposed to be canon as we know it or biblical and what is not. And they are, for the first time ever, Ath- Athanasius is able to bring to a council here's what we have, here's what we know, and we have. What we read, we we have what we slide over and scroll down on our phones, we have our Bible. Now, a hundred years later, a man named Jerome comes on the scene, and as Greek and Hebrew is written in these translations, he recognizes something. Um, The common person, as the the, the word of God begins to uh, go to other places, isn't really knowing Greek and Hebrew, and so he takes the Bible and he translates it into Latin. And as he translates those letters that were put together that Athanasius led, he takes those letters and he translates into Latin because uh, um, ultimately most people in those areas can read Latin and it ends up being called the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate just means common. So it can be read by a common person. The church loves this translation so much, the Latin Vulgate, of what you have of your scriptures, that for the next thousand years they have a rule. No other translation into any other language but the Latin Vulgate. All we have is Latin. Now, this becomes problematic, right? Because when you get into areas that no longer speak Latin as the common language, who has the power? The church has the power. So suddenly, we, we slowly move for the next thousand years into a place of this. And honestly, if we can make it real life, I, Sean Myers, can read the Bible, but you are depending every Sunday morning on me to hear it. And that's the, the rhythm. For the next thousand years, when you leave here, Your children, your children's children, your children's children's children will not get to read the Bible. They will rely on what I have to say. And FYI, homies are corrupt. And so what they do is they begin to take the Bible, slowly but surely, and they begin to morph it. And they begin to do things with it. And they begin to, to create rules around it. And they create these things called indulgences. And they rely on bishops. And they rely on priests. And they have the the, the, the Pope, right? And they, they begin to say certain things are certain rules. And it has really, honestly, no basis biblically. And so what happens, as this story goes a thousand years into this, a guy named John Whitcliffe, who's way more legit than the rapper who takes his name, okay? He, he comes on the scene and, and he has the nickname called the Morning Star of the Reformation because he recognizes something. There's something wrong with this. We read the Latin Vulgate, but Nobody else can read this beast. And I'm telling you, I'm reading it, and everyone needs to be reading this thing. And so he takes it, and he begins to translate it into a common language. And they don't like that. The church doesn't like that. So, so they have him killed. But, but, but he inspires, but a 100 years later, a guy named John Huss. John Huss begins to do the same thing that Whitcliffe did. And he begins to translate the Bible into another common language. And as they take John Whitcliffe, or, or as they take John Huss, they put him on a stake. They light a fire. John Huss is sitting there burning alive. And he says, and I quote, listen to the poetry of this, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform, who call, whose calls for re- reform cannot be suppressed. That happened in 1415. In 1515, 15, a man named Martin Luther is scrummaging through some sermons and finds pusses writings two years after that he recognizes uh, all the problems within the church the fact that no one can read the bible but a hundred years after that 1517 takes 95 issues he sees with the church and he nails it to the church and the core problem that martin luther sees is this thing that we rely on every single day as christians but we don't know our history to know it enough to know whether it. it's beautiful it's a little term called sola scriptura scripture alone We rely on Scripture alone, not the Pope. We don't rely on the clergymen. We rely on Scripture alone, and they obviously don't like this. Luther goes into exile. It's bad, but here's what we know. Luther translates the Bible into German, and just things blow up. I mean, it's not shortly around this time, right? The Gutenberg Press is being created, and so Bibles are being pressed and printed and pressed and printed, and here they come out, and everyone's reading this thing. Well, Unfortunately for Christians at the time, a woman takes power in England. Her name is Queen Mary, okay? You might know her as another name, Bloody Mary. She hates Christians. And she not just hates Christians to kill them because she does that, but she, again, very early on, like our our history before this, she hates the writings of Christians. And so she has one aim, to burn every Bible she can possibly find. But check it out. The word ain't messing around. So it's not afraid of persecution, it's not afraid of Bloody Mary, because she died. And you know who takes her place? A guy named King James. And he takes the Bible, and you may have heard of this, he creates something called the King James Version. And I quote, his goal was... To, to create a transi- a translation to end all translation. And it's from the King James Bible that you have the ESV, the NASB. You, you, you have translation after translation from this point. I mean, w- we take what we, we know as the English Bible. We have hundreds of translations in English, thousands in other languages over and over and over. And, and the Bible is almost putting in front of me, you can try all you want to get rid of me. But I promise you, and I quote Matthew twenty four twenty five. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will last forever. So persecution will come, but it will go. And you know who's still there? Bloody Mary will come, and she will go. But you know who's still there? Corrupt churchmen will come, and they will go. But you know what's still there? When the mountains fall and the earth dries up, you know what's still there? When you and I are still gone, you know what is still there? His word will not pass away. And now in this moment, you but have to swipe right to read it. But don't get it twisted. Just because it's commonplace, don't make it a common book. These people died for you to be able to read this thing. What drives that passion? I mean, what gives them such an urgency to know everybody needs to read this thing? If we knew that, if if we can get into their mind and we can see into their heart, I, I think we would be less apathetic towards the Bibles that we have. I mean, if you were to take, um, I made a list, I, 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 I did the math on this, and I hope this helps, maybe not, but this was amazing to me. If you were to take all of the Lord of the Rings copies, and the Hobbits, 150 million copies, and you were to take every book that was ever published by the Lord of the Rings, and you were to make a pile, throw onto that pile all the C.S. Lewis writings, all the Goosebumps writings, every chicken soup for the soul, all the Harry Potter books, if you're not feeling convicted, we can make a separate pile for Harry Potter, <laughs> that... The Da Vinci Code, Purpose Driven Life, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Little Princess, and just to rub it in, the Book of Mormon times five, okay? If you were to take all those translations, every book that has ever been published, and put them in a pile, it would be half the size of the Bible. Half the size of the Bible. The average American household has four Bibles in it. Four. Some of you grew up with a family Bible on your table that kept birth dates and anniversaries and such, but for whatever reason, there is not a drive, there is not a desire to know it like those dudes, those women, those men before us wanted us to know it. My goal is that we would see Psalm 119 showing us displaying those reasons, because I think it does. I think Psalm 119 gives us insight as to why this thing is so important, why it's the most read book of all time. So I want to do some of the analytics real quick. If you can open up to Psalm 119. When I say analytics, I mean some of the um, ways that we need to read Psalm 119, some things that we need to, and a lot of this honesty is recap of what Jim had given us last week. Um, so Psalm 118 is the largest bu- uh, chapter in all of the Bible, um, which I don't think is coincidence, right? Uh, it's the largest chapter in the, the Bible is about the Bible. But interesting about this, and I thought Jim um, explained this really well. It's 176 uh, verses, and those 176 verses are broken up into 22 sections. Each section has eight verses. So do the math, right? Eight times 22, 176, okay? But there's 22 sections because um, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, meaning each section, which has eight verses, starts um, with that letter. So if we were to do it in English, we would go, let me tell you how good the word is. A, um, awesome is your word. Always I will follow it and everyone should read it, right? And we would have eight lines. We would have eight lines, right, eight times. B, beautiful is your word. By the way, I think you should read it. Whatever you would say, okay? So, so you have this A, B, C, D, all the way. We have 26 letters, but 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And, and so we don't see that in English, but that's, that's kind of cool, right? We, we, we can read this and, and really kind of miss that, but I think that's um, awesome for us to know. Now, there's an important thing for us to kind of see in how we read this. I want to put the section of Scripture up that we had uh for the scripture reading but i want to put it up differently because there's a nuance to all this uh and and i think it's actually kind of helpful um in, in reading this, so we're not going to have the whole, that whole section, but I'll, I'll do my best to explain this because we're going to go through it. The text that we're going to go through right now, um, be, I want to, I want to actually read like seven of those eight sections, seven of those letters. So this isn't necessarily our text as much as it is I'm using this to explain how you can read Psalm 119. Okay. Um, any teacher in here would know that a good sentence is going to have a noun and a verb, right? Um, so, so in this, what we can do, I, I wish we had the numbers up here. We don't, so I'm just going to use uh, my numbers here. So for verse 17, it says, it says this deal, Bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Something Jim had uh, showed us last week was um, the Bible has a synonym, meaning it has a word that Psalm 119 is going to use um, in eight different ways. There's eight different synonyms. So um, as you read Psalm 119, you're going to see your word. Your law, your commandments, your precepts, your testimonies. It uses eight different words. Now, if you want to know why it uses those eight words, you can listen to Jim's sermon last week. But it uses those eight words, those eight nouns to describe the Bible every time, okay? But it uses a plethora I mean, so many different verbs to explain it. So when you're looking at it, you can see every single time in every one of these, it says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Look at verse 18. Open my eyes that I may... Behold wondrous things out of your law. Look at 19. I'm a soldier on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules. Uh, Verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. 22. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Going on to 23, uh, I will meditate on your statutes. 24, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. so on and so forth. So every sentence obviously has that noun and verb uh, uh, layout. But the, the difference, though, in, in Psalm 119 is the, the nouns, the descriptions of the Bible, are going to use the same eight words. And it's the verbs that I want to come back to at the end of our time here. So that's kind of honestly how you read it. And maybe you have some questions. Um, Jim had said this last week. Our goal for Redemption uh, Church is to make sure that that you um, know the Bible well, that you know how to read it, you know how to study it, um, you memorize it, and you do all that. So um, we'll talk a little bit about what, what that looks like at the end, um, but, but I, I want to come back to so now reading Psalm 119. So let's go back to my, my uh, goal here in doing this, okay? The goal, now that we know how to read Psalm 119, is um, to see what those men and women who died uh, who gave their life both literally in death and, and maybe 80 years in life to translate or whatever it is, uh, to give us the Bible, what, what drove them. And I think ultimately what Psalm 119 shows us is three things. I think Psalm 119 is going to give us a glimpse into three reasons you should care. Now I know if you're a Christian in here and you're not reading your Bible as much, you know you should care. I know that. But maybe you don't know why. I'm a Christian. I know I should read my Bible. Why? 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 I want to give you three things that I think is helpful. The first one is this. It's found, so you're going to go to Psalm 119, verse 9. We're going to read the, the Beth. If you look at the, the title, it's the, uh, the second, um, it's like our English equivalent, B, um, the second uh, stanza or section. This is what it says. Here's the first reason I think these men and women um, <laughs> wanted us to have the Bible. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. <coughs> in the mouth of your testimony, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first reason. Um, that I think is of utmost importance that we have our Bible, that you read your Bible, is the Bible is what makes sure you are not following and serving a false god, i.e. yourself. So the Bible is going to keep your path corrected. The Bible is going to keep you from your idols. The Bible is going to show you, hey, don't do that. Hey, do that. Without the Bible, you left to your own. And i got a couple examples here. Hear me. You will not only not tell yourself to pursue the American dream, you will encourage it. You will want the white picket fence, the two children, the CEO job, your kids suddenly know Singapore math and can speak Latin, and you pat yourself on the back because you're an awesome parent. And and, and without the Bible correcting you, in Matthew 6.33, that if you're not pursuing the kingdom of God, first and foremost... If, if if your life ends and starts on those things, okay, you will not only, without the Bible, try to go after that, you will be happy because the American ethos, dare I say, the church would almost encourage it. Now, hear me. I got the white picket fence. I got three beautiful children with the hopes of adopting a fourth. I, I have an awesome, amazing, beautiful wife, seven chickens, two turtles, two bunnies, one dumb dog. I... I I'm grateful for what I have, okay? But hear me when I say this. Um, My life cannot end and begin on those things. If I am not asking the question first, should my kids be in extracurricular sports? Should I be working 60 hours a week? Should I not make sure I have a date night with my wife every week? If I am not asking the questions, do these things consume my life in such a way that if I lost them, I would lose who I am? Now hear me, I don't think anyone would overtly say that. I don't think anyone would go, well yeah my whole identity is wrapped up in my house but hear me, without the Bible, you'll get there. You'll get there. Subconsciously, you will get there. And the Bible presses and says no, 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 no. it is not about this life. I got examples for days, guys. For the college students in the house, it makes sure it checks your whack views of self-control or lack thereof. For the singles in the house, it makes sure that you don't make an idol of that future spouse. The Bible's constantly putting in front of you, don't do that. Stop doing that. It's constantly putting in front of you. Walk in this way. Uh, So I want to read something, um, because I think it obviously shows this. The Bible all over is going to give us plays in this, but in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which is probably one of the more well-known verses, um, I I want you to hear um, why I ultimately think all these people knew that you needed the Bible, and what Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 is trying to communicate All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So hear me. The Bible is profitable to teach you. The Bible is profitable to reprove you. The Bible is profitable to correct you. And the Bible is profitable to train you in righteousness. Okay? That the man of God may be uh, complete, complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible puts you in a place to do the right things thing. I ver- me- remember this very tangibly in my own life. I had been saved for about a year. Um, and uh, I came across Ephesians five four uh, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These things are not for you, right? Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. These things are not for you. And at the time, me and my boys were saying like every filthy joke that you could under the sun, right? I mean, racist jokes, and gay jokes, and all these different. Where it didn't matter, like for for us. And I remember I didn't feel convicted at all about them. And I'm reading through the Bible, right? And I read that in Ephesians five four, and then going on later in verse ten where it says all that found is all that is found in the light is good, right and true. So if I want to follow Jesus and do the good, right, and true thing, I'm looking at this section of scripture and go, what do I do? I I want to do the good things, the right things, the true things. I need to avoid foolish talk, coarse jokes, obscene stories, because these things are not for me as a Christian. Now hear me when I say this. There's no like, don't tell this type of joke. I remember reading that going, I need a course correction. I need a course correction. Now you may feel like Okay, well, like, what do I do? How do I, um, how do I know when it's saying this or may, what kind of joke? Listen, the reality was I suddenly felt God say, hey, dummy, stop doing that. Without the Bible, I would have continued that path. Now, listen, I was not overtly sinning. I wasn't giving God the middle finger and saying, forget you. I wasn't doing any of those things. No, I was simply doing what I do. I was going with the rhythm. I've given this example before, but just going to, to, to Venice Beach, watching our kids over and over, I had to tell them, you need to make sure you know where you are in the ocean because everybody knows when you get into the ocean, you get 15 feet out, but 20 minutes later you're 30 yards down the beach, right? Because without even knowing it, the current has slowly taken you. And my point is this, left on your own, if you try to do this thing without the Bible, you will love your idols. The Bible will not correct you because you're not reading it. Left on your own without the Bible, you will sin. It is the Bible who, and I quote, I love this, who guards our ways. I love this. Uh, Verse nine, how can a young man keep his ways pure? Everybody who's a young man, I would put myself in that thing. How can I keep my ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. I will seek you with my whole heart. Let me not wander from your commandments. Look at verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I would not sin against you. So I don't want to sin against you to do that. I need to store up your word in my heart. The first thing that I think every Christian before us knew we needed the Bible is because the Bible will stop us from sinning. The, The second thing is found... In verse uh, uh, 26 of Psalm 119, the second reason, I think it goes along with this first purpose. It says this, my soul clings to, to the dust, give me life. I don't know if I said, but verse 26, my soul clings to the dust, give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes, make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word, put false ways Far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I think the second thing, and I'll just outright say it at this point, it not just tells you um, how to uh, correct your course. It doesn't just tell you what to do and what not to do, but it literally gives you life. As a Christian, hear me when I say this, Jesus promises you, I love, like in, in, in John 6, no, on my words, you will have life. That's what Jesus says, okay? After he's being tempted by Satan, and I mean that literally, like some of us are like, I'm being tempted by Satan. No, the dude was te- tempted by Satan, okay? In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, right when he's done, what's his declaration in, in his interaction with Satan? What's his declaration? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're told Romans 10, 14, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how do you as a Christian grow? How do you get life? There's only one answer, the word of God. The word of God. Listen to what he says in this section of verses. In verse 26, my soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. Look at verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. In the 28th, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word skip down to verse 31 i cling to the testimonies O lord let me not be put to shame into verse 32 which i think is the greatest verse in this section i will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart so it's only possible to be able to look at god's word to be able to read his word to be able to gather all these things as the spirit of god comes from you it's only possible to grow if we do that there is no other life in the, the podcast of John Piper. There's nothing else that you can get from Joyce Myers or Joel Osteen. I promise you, on that last one, okay? Um, there, there, there's nothing you can do. The Bible is the only thing that's going to give you life. Worship will encourage you. Prayer will draw you closer. But the thing that will give you life is the Spirit of God popping onto a page and you going, wow. That's the only thing. Now hear me, I can get excited for you. But it is only the Bible that will give you life. That passion will go away when you go to your car. The Bible will give you life. You need it. You wonder why you feel like you're frail and anemic as a Christian. You're not reading your Bible. The last reason that I think they give it to us um, I'm going to read two sections here found in verse 49. And, uh, and found in verse uh, 145. So let's start in, in, in 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction that your pray, your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly derade me but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of, of my sojourn. Verse 55, I remember your name in the nights, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen on me that I have kept your precepts. Go all the way down to verse 145. It says this. So these sections, I think, would argue for these all these same things, but verse 145 says this. With my whole heart, I cry. Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call all to you, save me that uh, I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to the steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice. Give me life. They draw near to me who persecute me with evil purposes. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. Long have I known your testimonies that I have founded, uh, that that you have founded them forever. So so here's, I think, the third reason. Um, and you can hear this. I'll go back to read a couple of those verses because that was a lot of uh, uh, a text that I just read. I think that they knew we needed our word, okay, um, because life is going to be terrible sometimes like pain is coming so yesterday um uh Corbin was at uh, Corbin's my eight, uh, oldest son he's eight years old uh, he, he's at next door neighbors comes running in it's like oh you know we got an issue whatever and I look at Corbin and Corbin's chin's all busted open whatever um okay so I'm like holy cow you know so we're gonna need some stitches so we go to the doctor he's freaking out okay and he gets stitches actually he didn't get stitches he gets glue modern technology I don't know what they did um but, but, but here, here's, here's my points, okay? Let's say, Chris, my next-door neighbor, comes running in with my son, and it's not just his chin. Like, let's say, as I was praying with a friend of mine just recently, um, Corbin hits his head so bad that he's knocked unconscious, and his brain begins to swell. And I'm sitting in the hospital instead of preaching with you today, and all I can think about is my son's going to die. Those dudes who, who wanted you to have the Bible so desperately— one of the reasons I would argue they wanted you to have it because in those moments, all you have is the Bible. All you have is what God has told you. The Bible reminds you of hope constantly. Hear, hear what it says in the, these sections of verses. In verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. What is the comfort in my affliction? If it was worse than just a chin injury, if you had lost a spouse, a family member? When you lose that job, when that person breaks your heart, what do you have in that affliction? All we have in those moments is scripture, because all in that moments we recognize is scripture, God telling us what we need to hear. I mean, over and over, listen to what he continues to say. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sondering. I mean, that's beautiful, right? So during my wandering, as I've wandered and I feel lost, the word of God has been my song. It's been the Bible. In moments of pain, in moments of turmoil, what have you memorized? Because I promise you, Fixer Upper will let you down. I promise you that. The Cardinals will let you down. I promise you. Like the office, I mean, it will sustain you for a while, it's not gonna, I mean, it might help you, but, but the reality is, like, Michael Scott, he's going to let you down. What we continue to pour into ourselves to prepare for that moment, to prepare for that moment, is, like, ultimately has to be the Bible. I mean, he goes on, even in that next section, hear me, I call to you, save me, verse 47, I rise before dawn, and I cry for help. He's going through all this pain, and in verse 51, here's the declaration, and all this pain, but you are near, O oh Lord. And all your commandments are true. Do you, do you hear that in verse 51? "But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. I know, I feel like killing myself right now, but your commandments are true. I know I feel like I just lost the most important thing in my life, but your commandments are true. I mean, do, do you hear what, what we read corporately, neither life nor death or any other created thing? Like there, there's nothing in all those things, st- nothing that can separate us. It's only verses like that that will sustain us. It's the Bible. Now, here's where I'm going to finish because I'm running out of time. Um, with those three things on the table, but I think ultimately they wanted us to have the Bible first and foremost because it corrects our path. It, it keeps us from sin. Secondly, it's because it gives us life. It promises us, hey, listen, you continue to do this sinful thing, but if you would follow me, uh, I have life set before you. It gives us life as we read it. And then the last thing is when push comes to shove, when all hell breaks loose, the Bible's the only thing that sustains us. It's the only thing that revives us. It's the only thing that keeps us going. With those things on the table, I, I want you to notice something, and this is where we get at that desire part of it. Most of Psalm 119 um, gets at something more than you just reading your Bible. So, so I've shared this with you from the stage before, but about a year and a half ago, I, I did a, a personal study on Psalm 119 before I ever knew we were going to uh, preach through Psalm 119. And as I was going through it, I couldn't help but notice two things. One, it kept using those eight, remember those eight words that describe the Bible? Precepts, laws, testimonies, rules, whatever it is. It kept using those, but nowhere... In Psalm 119, did it ever tell me as a verb to read it? Nowhere. Not one time in Psalm 119, and that was super intriguing to me. And what I came to find out, which I've shared before here on Sunday, nowhere in the Bible does it tell me to read it. Because as you read it, what do we notice? The the, the predominant themes are not, hey, just come there and, and, and read this thing and you're good. But no, there's something different about this thing. There's something different about the words that are on this page. There, there's something that, that, that stirs my heart. There's something more that, 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 that comes to life within me. There's something different. And because of that, I don't read it like I read Lord of the Rings. I don't read it like I read To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't read it like those things, do I? No, no, no. Listen to the foremost used words in all of Psalm 119, that we are to keep his word. We are to walk in his word. We are to meditate on his word and then hear this we are to delight in his word the verbs that are used are different and i think that friends i think that's the difference i think that's the difference we see this as a book and 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 we read it but it's not meant to be read it's it's meant to be delighted in it's meant to be walked out it's meant to be kept i mean that's different you you it's almost as if to say, you don't do that with a book, do you? You do that with a person. Well, the cr- I mean, cr- Jim, if you ever sit down with Jim Ellis, he has stories for days, man. And, and um, he had told me when he was uh, a little kid, if you can imagine that. Um, um, he, he told me when he was a little kid, he was with his grandpa, I think it was for the summer, whatever it was, he was spending time with his grandpa. And um, the newspaper came and he brought his newspaper, uh, the, the newspaper into his grandpa. And his grandpa was sitting there just reading his Bible, right? Just reading his Bible. He goes, hey, you know, Grandpa, I've I've got the newspaper for you. No, I don't do anything until I I, I read the Bible. Jim, obviously curious, goes, well, well, how long have you been doing that for, Grandpa? For 38 years, every day. Well, how many times have you missed? Not once. You don't do that with a book. You don't devote every day of your life before you read the newspaper, before you pick up your stupid phone, You don't do that with a book. There is something different. There is something more. The only thing that can motivate a passion, a desire like that is a person. And I would argue beyond those three things, the biggest reason every Christian before us wanted us to have this book, to have this Bible, is because the story points us towards Jesus. And he's the one who makes your heart pump. He's the one who gives you desires. And you want to know him. You sit there and you pray to him. You desire that he would help you do the right things. You, you, you come to him with all of your affliction. You, you, you constantly long for him. And in the pages of scripture, every single arrow, part of our leadership training is to teach our leaders to point every verse in, in all of the Bible, in every book, it always points to Jesus. He is the hero. He is the savior. He is the victor. He's the better David, he's the better Moses, he's the better Abraham. He is the one who saves his people out of Egypt. He is the ultimate prophet, he is the ultimate priest, he is the ultimate king. And in the pages of scripture you see his beauty as he comes to the earth and you recognize something. That I'm not just strengthened by reading words on a page in my moments of affliction, but I follow a savior who's been afflicted. Did you see the difference? You don't devote 38 years of your life to just a book. It's more than that. You draw near to your God in those times. My hope is, my prayer is, before I read this last quote and we pray, that you would see that you need the Bible because in its pages are found your hope. And his name is Jesus. That's the answer, man. That's the answer. So it's been a month since I've preached, and I would be remiss not to share something from a man Spurgeon. (laughs) So this is what he had said. Finishing up, he was preaching on on Hebrews 4.12, which is, Uh, The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, separating soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is a discerner of our innermost thoughts. Hebrews 4.12 recognizes that the Bible is getting at the the depths of who we are. You can lie to other people, and you might even be able to lie to yourself, but you'll never be able to lie to the Bible. It's going to call you out, right? And so uh, he's going through this, and at the very end of his sermon, he's talking about the Bible, and he's calling it a book. He calls it this book, this book, this book. And this is what he says about it, and this is my prayer that I hope I would feel. The book has smitten me. The book has comforted me. The book has smiled on me. The book has frowned on me. The book has collapsed my hand. The book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me and sings with me. It whispers to me and it preaches to me. It maps my way and holds um, up my goings. It was to me the young man's best companion and it's still my morning and evening chaplain. It is a living book all over alive. From its first chapter to its last word it is full of a strange mystic vitality which makes it, uh, it have a preeminence over every other writing for every other li- for every living child of God may that be our prayer about the bible let's pray Father thank you Thank you for your word as we read it this morning we recognize the hilariousness, the fact that uh, the guy writing this chapter only had the first five books in the Bible, and here he is in love, in desperate love with you and, uh, and your word, and he sees your law and your testimony as something beautiful, and yet here we have the whole narrative, the whole narrative of scripture. We see the beauty of you, Jesus, on this earth, and we're just apathetic so, so, Holy Spirit, we come to you right now as a church, and our prayer is a simple one. Give us a desire, an ever-growing, overwhelming, passionate desire to be in your word. Please, this is not something we can conjure up. This is not something we can make happen. You've got to do this, Holy Spirit. We don't always understand what it's saying. Sometimes we're lost. But drive us when we don't feel like playing defense, when we don't feel like sprinting down the court. Drive us and remind us there's a greater desire. May we hold fast to your word. May it reprove us, rebuke us, correct us. May it train us in righteousness. May it make us wise into salvation. May it, may it be a discerner of our innermost thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. You could have given us recordings. You you could have uh, given us oral tradition, but you put your words on paper for us to read and meditate and memorize. Thank you for that gift. May we not see it as commonplace. May we not treat it like any other book. May we hold fast to it to keep us from sin. May we hold fast to it to give us life. May we hold fast to it for the day of trouble. Thank you, Jesus, for being the hero, for displaying the Bible perfectly and us seeing you in that. We love you.